Hello, Hacker Public Radio. This is Gabriel Evenfire. I'm a long-time HPR listener, and I thought it about time that I submit my own show to the community. Why? Well, I think everybody knows the answer to that. There's all the fame, the glory, the money. Well, mostly the narcissism, I suppose, in my case. I just have this project that I've been working on on my own time at home, and I love to gush about it. I talk about it all the time to my family, to my friends, to my co-workers, and apparently I'm willing to babble on about it to random strangers in the Internet. Hopefully, if the little project isn't of interest to you, at least the tale of how it came about might be. If not, well, there's always tomorrow on HPR. You never know what you'll see next. My project is called Onyx, O-N-I-C-S, which stands for Open Network Inspection Command Suite. The idea behind the project is to create a suite of tools that one runs on the command line to manipulate network packets in the same way that your traditional Unix tools like SED and AUK and GREP and TR and so forth manipulate lines of text. There have been various command line networking tools over the years. There was a, a suite called SPAC way, way back, 10 years ago, for generating packets on the command line. There's the venerable Netcat. There is HPing. But none of these, I thought, really provided the flexibility and power that we tend to see, again, in the usual Unix command suite. So I thought I'd give it a shot. Once upon a time, in an older job about nine years ago, I did a attempt to create a few of these tools, and I was trying at the time just to create some framework for us to create test cases for a larger project that we were working on. And when I was done with them, our customer said, hey, you know, it would be a really good idea if you guys open-sourced those tools, because they're probably not worth money, but, you know, it would get us a lot of attention in the community. People would probably like it. And the company I was working for said, open what now? Why would we give away our software for free? Oh, I was less than pleased about that. And I fought for a while to try to get them to see the light, and they never did. A few years later, I left the company. I have no idea what became of that code base. And, quite frankly, it was done in all the wrong ways. But it still gave me the hope that creating a tool suite, as I was envisioning, was at least possible. So, what's the idea? How would it work? The, uh, the general idea is that you would start with a set of files, like PCAP files, traces of network packets. And you would pass them through these tools, and you would manipulate them. You would get to fold, spindle, mangle, and mutilate them. You could extract them. You could split them into separate files. I was pretty much hoping that I could find or create an equivalent tool for each of the following programs. Cat, grep, sed, awk, sort, diff, head, tail, wc, word count, tr, t, and paste. And of course, I'm sure there are many others that came to mind at the time, too. Unfortunately, as I was looking at how to create these replacement tools, I kept getting hung up on one important thing, the PCAP format. Quite frankly, it's terrible for this kind of an application. Every PCAP file has a fixed set of fields. It's not very extensible. Every PCAP file has a file header on the front that defines attributes for the entire packet trace. So, for example, you can only have one data link type in a packet trace. So, if you have packets that were captured, some from... Uh, Ethernet and some from PPP, uh, you're out of luck. They can't go in the same PCAP file. Furthermore, the fact that you have that header 
in front of all of the packets means you can't just cat two of these files together because then you have an extra header stuck in the middle that the tools can't parse. It also makes it a pain to split because every time you want to say take a packet out of one file and say shove it into another you have to remember oh by the way what was that stupid header now I have to slap that in front of it. So the more I fought with this poor file format, the re more I realized I just had to replace it, at least for my tools. So I created a packet capture format, or an external representation for packets that I call xpacket. So the first two utilities that I ended up creating were utilities to take in PCAP files and translate them to and from the xpacket format. I thought this was a great idea because since the PCAP library is able to read and write packets from the network itself, then these utilities would also be able to read X packets right off the network and write X packets right to the network. After I had these programs done, the next thing I started working on were some libraries to actually parse protocol headers. And I had a goal in mind. I wanted to not have to rewrite the protocol parsing for every one of these tools. So I was trying to create a set of libraries that would let one interact with the fields and the packet headers in a, in a network packet without actually having to know how they were put together. So that those same parsing and manipulation routines could be called in every single tool I created. So I came up with a, a library based around the abstraction that each header would be parsed to a set of offsets into the packet buffer. And the idea would be that you could have offsets that would just be marked invalid for certain fields that might be optional within the packet. And if you had variable length fields within a packet, you could use two offsets to denote their start and end. Well, why do this? And it seems extra complicated when you have to, when all you could just do is say it starts here and you give it a length dynamically as you parse the packets. Well, one of the things I definitely wanted to be able to do in the tools was insert or remove bytes from the middle of the packet. And whenever one did this, one would have to adjust all of the starting offsets and possibly the lengths in every single packet parse. So, by instead modeling the parsed information as a set of offsets, the insertion and removal routines actually could just shift those up or down as needed without having to know what they referred to. After I wrote that library, I also wrote another library that would allow one to refer to the fields within a protocol by name, and this library would provide all of the information on how to extract or how to write to these different fields, just given the name of the field that you were looking for. Now, any tool, if provided a name by on the command line, would know exactly how to extract that field from the packet and how to embed that field back into the packet if you wanted to change it. Once I'd written that, the next part were some basic packet buffering libraries, which appear in just about every networking project in the world. And then I was ready now to create utilities to dump out packets that I had in xpacket format so that it was in a nice human-readable form. In other words, I wanted to be able to do TCP dump. So the next thing I decided was that instead of having this little TCP dump utility look like traditional TCP dump, I was going to have it output the packets in an annotated hex dump format that was similar to hex dumps that are used in traditional Unix command line tools. That is, there would be comments, comment lines, that would contain information about the packet fields, like they would tell you that a set of bytes referred to IP address 1.2.3.4. And then below that would be the actual hex dump of the packet that contained that data.
the idea would be that one could, if you wanted, go and manipulate the hex by hand with your favorite text editor if you wanted to change the packets, and one could use traditional hex manipulation tools to convert that hex data right back into packets if you wanted. So you could bring regular Unix tools to bear onto the packets in some small way. So I wrote uh, the routine to dump the packet into that hex format, and then another one, just for good measure, that would dump from the hex format back into the packet format. Great. That worked. That was all well and good. The next thing I wanted to do was to be able to multiplex and demultiplex packets. I wanted to be able to ultimately, if I wanted to, write a router out of some of these tools. So that would mean that if a packet came into the system and I had a script that did a route lookup and it said it had to go out this interface instead of, you know, eth0, for example, instead of eth1, that there would be a tool that along the way would say, ah, okay, to get to eth0, I follow this path, and to get to eth1, I follow this path. And again, I wanted this on the command line. So what one would be doing is multiplexing and demultiplexing on named pipes in the system. So that's where uh, the next two tools came along, packet mux and packet demux. And now it was time for our favorite, everybody's favorite Unix tools, the ones that you learn to love and hate at the same time, but once you know them, love, love, and love. And that's your regular expression matching tools, like grep or sed, or for that matter, awk. So I wanted to be able to match patterns on packets and then carry out some sort of actions when those patterns were matched. At first, the, my approach to this was to create a little stack-based virtual machine. The idea was to be similar to the Berkeley packet filter virtual machine. I wanted it to be completely verifiable so that one could write a program in it and it would be so safe that you could even embed it inside the kernel. But I wanted it to be able to do more than just match. And so, as I was working on the instruction set, I kept fact the control store was non-writable, just like the BPF engine, but I ended up with something that looked nothing like BPF. I ended up with a virtual machine that had a segmented memory model, a non-writable control store, a verifiable instruction set for a subset of the instructions, so that the virtual machine could run in a verifiable and non-verifiable mode. I also added features that is, instructions in the VM that are a bit higher level, like the ability to pull bytes out of the packet based on indexes into the packet parses that my other parsing libraries would generate. Also, I had added uh, a regular expression engine for matching in the packets, which was another side project from years before. It's uh, my own regex engine. It's not very sophisticated, but it, it does work. And, I, and also the ability to do bulk copies in and out of packets and bulk string comparisons and masked string comparisons. Okay, so now I had a virtual machine that the virtual machine itself didn't understand anything about TCP or IP, but it received a library that could parse TCP and IP and so and IPv6 and ICMP and so forth. And if the program running under it knew how to ask it in the right way, it could nevertheless extract fields from the, the TCP header or the IP header or the IPv6 header or modify fields in said, in said headers. So the virtual machine itself knew nothing about the protocol parsing, but the programs could. And at this point, as I was testing this virtual machine, I'd basically been hand coding all of the assembler in my test programs. And then one of my coworkers I saw had written this quick and dirty assembler, and I thought, well, if he can write a quick and dirty assembler, why in the heck can't I? I can just do this and knock it out in a weekend. So what did I do? Well, we were visiting my in-laws that weekend, and any moment where we weren't socializing or having fun, I went back to my laptop, and I tried to grind out a quick, dirty assembler, 
And then, while I was at it, I also added a disassembler so I could verify that the assembler was doing what it was supposed to be doing. And then, after that, I realized, well, assembling and disassembling is nice and all, but I also need some sort of a file format similar to ELF or something so that I can actually save the assembled instructions into a, into a format that can be read in and executed. And I need a runtime that has the NetVM in it to be able to run on packets. Okay, uh, so it took a little bit more effort than I thought, but ultimately, within a week, I had an assembler, a runtime, a file format, and an interpreter that could read that file format, pass packets through it, and run these little NetVM programs on every packet. And so I thought, great, cool, now I can ma manipulate packets in a programmable way, in the sort of form that I had wanted with set in awk, where you could have, you know, a pattern that was matched, and then based on that pattern, it could carry out uh, operations. Or it could just run code on every single packet. And just like awk also has begin and end segments, you could also just write code that ran at the beginning of the program before packets came in, or after the program finished, after all the packets had been read in. But even as I finished this off and was patting myself on the back, I, it, it occurred to me that this really wasn't as high level as said or awk. I mean, come on, who is going to write assembly on the command line? Okay, so I really needed a higher level language, and I decided that it was high time to create it. So I settled on creating the language PML. I call it PML for Packet Manipulation Language, or, more colorfully, Packet Mangling Language. Again, the idea was that this language would be an awk-like language. So it would be higher level, it would be Turing complete, but the structure of the program would look like a pattern action format. Originally, I used a lex and yak to write the lexical analyzer and the parser generator, but I really, really didn't like yak that much because its parsers were single-threaded on most platforms, and uh, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And then, while I was listening to the BSD Talk podcast, I heard about the lemon parser generator. And the lemon parser generator you probably haven't heard of, but it's actually a parser generator embedded in every distribution of SQLite because it actually compiles the compiler for the SQL language in SQLite. And this parser generator was released public domain, so one is perfectly free to take it and embed it in any project, regardless of the license. I thought this was pretty cool. So, I ripped out my yak grammar, and I replaced it with a lemon grammar. And success! Uh, well, I hadn't re really finished the grammar yet, but I was getting somewhere. The grammar was coming along, it was parsing, and I had the feeling at this point, I'm almost done. Once I get this awk-like language, that's sort of the crown jewel. Everything else will just fall out from that. As we'll see, I, I was half right. So now I was really grinding away at this tool. I was working late at night after the kids and my wife were asleep. I was coding on weekends. I was coding during my daughter's basketball practice. I was just really hammering on this because it seemed like the end was in sight, and I really, really wanted to build this tool. My family in this time was becoming less and less pleased with my obsession. But... Finally, the parser was done, and then I started on the code generation, and I thought that would be simple, and boy, was I wrong about that. The code generation took as long as the parser and the lexer, but I did grind through it and understand that the idea was I was compiling programs to the NetVM virtual machine. Uh, when I had my first Hello World in PML working, that was really fun. I was really happy about that. But what really got me to do an engineer's victory dance was that only a few hours later, I managed to get a program compiled that would 
go through and compute the internet checksum on an IP packet and verify whether it was correct or not. So that involves loops, it involves indirection in the program, as well as printing and control flow, and all of that was working. So I was doing something right. So I was really pleased. PML was coming along, and I realized as I was doing this, however, that there were a lot of cases to cover. And at this point, I decided I had to do something to manage the complexity. And I did what I really should have been doing all along, and that was to start writing unit tests. Lots and lots of unit tests. Unit tests for the lexical analyzer, unit tests for the parser generator, unit tests that would check to see whenever the NetVM instructions that the compiler generated differed from a previous version in the exact same program. Then, of course, I started testing to make sure that the programs actually worked and did what they were intending to do. And for each one of these, I built a regression test suite. The good news for me was now that every time I added a feature, I could just type make in the test directory, and it would run a whole battery of tests and make sure that everything worked exactly the way it had before. And it gave me a lot more confidence. So most programmers don't really think or think about or like doing testing. I, through this process, just came to love tests because it made my life so much better in the long run, at least for this project. Okay, so I kept grinding away at this. PML was functional. I thought, now is the time to start open sourcing this. So I made an account on Gatorius for it. Uh, and it was about this time that I decided on the name Onyx. I thought there are so many good programming languages that are named after gems, like Ruby or Perl, so Onyx seemed like a, a nice one. Plus, since it was a Unixy command suite, I thought Onyx sounded like a nice Unixy name. I started showing this off to my friends and coworkers, and unfortunately, this was a reality check for me because the more I showed it off to them, the more they thought it was pretty cool, but I realized just how rough it was around the edges. So I started grinding through and doing some more tests and some more tests. And I started working in particular on an entire section of the code that I had written but never tested, and that was packet generation. You see, I wanted to be able to create a set of PML programs, or at least scripts that ran PML, that would let you build up a packet a little at a time. The idea would be that you could cat some data through and pipe it to a wrap TCP program that would put a TCP header around the data and then pass that to a wrap IP program which would put an IP header around that and then a wrap Ethernet program which would put an Ethernet header around that and each one of those programs would let you manipulate the fields to customize them as you needed. So, for example, like setting the Ethernet MAC address or setting the IP time to live, or whatever. And then finally, you could even pipe it after that. You, I mean, you could redirect it straight out to a file if you wanted to save your work, or you could pipe it right to the PCAP out program to send it on the network. So you could even generate a packet onto the network straight from the command line. As I started creating these tools and, and these are these scripts, which are really just thin wrappers around PML, I found lots and lots of bugs in that untested portion of the code, and a, a bit more grinding later, and a more unit tests later, and now they were done. And now I was thinking, okay, now really, I'm I'm about done, right? At this point, I even t went one step further, and I created a little script called TCP Sess. For TCP session, and this script would let you give a list of files on the command line, and it would generate a complete TCP connection, starting with the connection establishment with the SYN, SYNAC, and ACK packets, followed by the data in the files that were given on the command line, broken up into appropriately sized TCP segments, and responded to by the receiver with acknowledgement packets until all of the data was sent in both directions 
and the command line flags would specify what order those files were to be played in each direction. And then finally, finishing with a shutdown handshake of the fin-ack-fin-ack nature. And I thought that was really cool. It was another engineering victory dance when I ran this program, and then I piped the output of this program to my PCAP out file to turn it into a PCAP file, and then I piped that into TCP dump to read it back, and TCP dump looked at it and said, oh yeah, this looks like a perfectly well-formed TCP stream. That was pretty cool. Oh, so, okay, good. Now I, now I really had some flexible tools. They could do some really neat things. And I thought, surely I'm, I'm almost done, but I realized that I still had some things that I wanted to take care of. I am obviously, as you can tell, a bit of a do-it-yourselfer when it comes to programming. I like to have written everything myself. It's just one of my hang-ups. If I can help it, I want to do it myself. And so I didn't like the fact that my programs depended on the Lex library and the libpcap library. Uh, I didn't mind so much about Lemon, because Lemon I could distribute with the code itself. So while I didn't write it myself, and I have some aspirations in the future of writing my own parser generator, for now it was okay. At least if somebody wanted to download and compile my tools, they didn't need to download the parser generator. But they did have to have Lex, and they did have to have libbcap. And I didn't like that. I wanted the whole thing self-contained. I hate autoconf. I hate doing dot slash configure. I want the thing to be able to compile right on the command line the first time in every environment that supports C, if at all possible. So what I did was I wrote my own PCAP parsing library to be able to parse PCAP files or write PCAP files. And then I went and I basically rewrote the Lexer by hand as a C program. Uh, well, more a C library. Okay. Good, so now the system could be self-contained, right? Uh, just to make sure that I could capture packets off the network live and inject them onto the network and not depend on libpcap, I then took an, the extra step of going and finding the Linux and BSD ways of capturing and injecting packets, and then I created versions of the PCAP in PCAP out program that would capture packets from the network or send packets to the network, but I created a separate version for each of those OSs. And then the build would select which one to compile based on some vague detection of your environment. And in any case, the PCAP specific programs and these OS specific programs were optional builds. And so, if the build system couldn't figure out whether you had libpcap, and if it couldn't figure out that you were trying to compile for Linux, it would just create dummy versions of those programs that would error out immediately and say, I'm sorry, that's not supported on this platform. You could still run all of the other tools in the tool suite. So, again, I was trying to make it as platform independent as possible by isolating the platform-specific parts from the rest of the code base. And now I was thinking, great, great, now I really should be done. And you know what, all this time in the back of my mind I'd been thinking there is one killer app that does not exist anywhere in the networking world that I've ever seen, and that's the equivalent of diff for packets. If you don't know, the diff program takes two files and it finds the minimum set of transformations to convert one file into the other file. So it shows you how to edit the first file to produce the second file. In other words, it shows you the difference between the two files. And I thought, and I knew, that this would be really, really cool to have for packets. Back when we had done the older version of this, of this suite back in nine years ago, Somebody had come along and taken the tools we had, and they wrote their own diff utility. And it was pretty cool. It was neat. It relied on, however, the packets having an embedded sequence number so that the program could tell when packets had been dropped or when they had been inserted. So I thought, well, I could rewrite something like that. So I wrote a bunch of scripts that would 
attempt to embed sequence numbers into a packet stream in various spare bits and fields within the packet, and then extract them at some point later. But the more I thought about it, the, real, I, the more I thought this was kludgy. And really, finding the edit distance is a simple programming problem. At least it is when you study it in school. But it's a little trickier with packets because modifications to the packet stream can happen at at least three layers of abstraction. Entire packets can be dropped or inserted or reordered. That's one layer. Also, headers can be pushed on or popped off. For example, when a packet enters a tunnel or leaves a tunnel. And third, individual fields within a packet header can be inserted or removed. And of course, individual fields within a packet can also be changed. For an example of fields that get inserted or removed from a packet, consider IP options or IPv6 extension headers. So, in other words, to find the minimum amount of editing that was needed to change one stream of packets into another, I had to figure out whether it was cheaper to drop a packet outright or change a few of its fields to make it match a different packet in the stream. And this all seemed very daunting. So I kind of stalled and put it off for a while. And on the side, I decided, you know what, let's take a break. Let's go and learn JavaScript. I, I know many programming languages. That one was not in my repertoire. I'm partial to lots of scripting languages, but I'm not much of a web programmer myself, so JavaScript just never, I didn't have a good reason to, to learn it. So I learned JavaScript, and while I was doing it, I thought, you know what, why don't I dust off my memory and my algorithm to textbook and pull out our typical Domero-Levenstein edit distance algorithm and code that up in JavaScript. And I did, and I realized, you know what, this algorithm isn't really that tricky. Come on, let's just buckle down and do diff for packets. So I did. I started in earnest. And I had a little bit of, of a time trying to engineer the, the cost functions to be able to determine, again, whether it was cheaper to make one type of edit versus another. But I did settle on one that I thought was sensible, that the cost would be proportional to the number of bits inserted or removed relative to the size of the packet. And with that, and with these multiple layers of running the same Domero-Levenstein distance algorithm, I had a really cool diff program. I could put in a stream of packets, and I could pass it through a PML program, and the PML program might say, okay, drop the fifth packet, duplicate the eighth packet, and on the tenth packet, change the TTL to five. And when I ran that, I would, you know, I had an in file. It would go through my little script, and then I would have my output file. And then I'd run both files through pdiff, and I would see exactly that. It would say, ah, here, in, uh, drop the fifth packet. Uh, and look, here, insert this packet after the eighth packet, which looked exactly like the, the eighth packet. Oh, and by the way, in this, what's now the eleventh packet, the TTL was changed to five. So, cool. This was really great. And I was thinking, this, this is something I don't even see anywhere else in the networking world. This is going to be awesome. Really, I should be done now. This is, this is cool. And so as I'm wrapping up and documenting different pieces of my code, in, in particular documenting the PML language, I was thinking about, hey, by the way, how would I write ping in this tool suite? And as I thought about that, it occurred to me that the PML language and none of my tools really had any sense of, of time-based events. They were all run to completion. That is, a packet comes in, you do stuff on it until you're done, and then it goes out. Uh, it stymied me for a little bit, but then I thought, hey, I have actions in PML that occur when the program starts in the begin pattern, and then I have bits of code in the PML program that runs when the packets, uh, when all the packets are finished going through the system. That's in the end block of the PML program. So why don't I just create a new type of block, a tick block? And this will execute code every so often. Let's say once a millisecond. And then as long as your events 
have to happen no at no finer granularity than a millisecond, you can have any sort of time-based events. And this actually turned out to be a relatively easy mod, so I put it in, and great! Now I had a really cool new feature. And at this point, I was thinking, I really was thinking, this is, you know, all that I wanted to get done for my basic functionality. I should be wrapping up now. And about this time, it was time for our family vacation to the beach. So I was ready to relax and chill. And although in previous summers I had been working on these tool suites, I thought I'm probably not going to be doing much this time. But my daughter, she had been, my eldest daughter to be specific, she had been saving up her money to buy her own first laptop. And she wanted to get a Google Chromebook. And she did. And I was very curious about this little box. So I was wondering what sort of network traffic I'd see from it in the background. So while we are at the beach house, I'm on the wireless network and I break out my tools and I'm scanning the packets, looking to see, you know, who's who's chattering with whom and how often. And I realized, you know, it was getting a little tedious to be looking at these packets on a packet-by-packet -packet basis. It would be nice if I had a program that would look at the stream of packets and just create a summary of the connections that were going through. You know, oh look, this TCP connection started. Oh, and now it's ended. Oh, this TCP connection started. Oh, it's still going, and it's transferred this much data. Oh, it's still going, and it's transferred this much data. Oh, and now it's done. Things like that. And also, wouldn't it be cool if I could tag the packets that were going through with information about which connection they were on, so that other tools could operate on that specific information? I had a nice extensible metadata format to do that, so why not do it? Okay, well, you can guess what happened next. Late nights at the beach house, spare moments between lunch and, and heading down to the pool, whatever it was, I worked on yet another tool. Called this one NFT for Network Flow Tracker, and within a day and a half I had it done and working exactly the way I wanted. I was pretty happy about that. And I started looking again at the traffic, and I was noticing some cool, interesting patterns. I was pretty happy about this. And then, as I'm watching the packets, I'm realizing, oh, you know, it's always one more thing. My ICMP and ICMPv6 parsing really were very, very basic, and wouldn't it be nice if, instead of having to decode these packets by hand, it actually went the extra mile and decoded them based on their type and code appropriately? Okay, so another day or so was spent going through the RFCs, looking at all the relevant type codes and making sure I was parsing them all correctly, and augmenting my protocol parsers to handle that. Okay, and that worked. And now I was thinking, this is great. Everything is solid and polished, and I can't think of any real other must-haves that I have to add for this tool suite. Awesome! So, really, I should be done. I'm done now, right? Uh, the next week, I'm in the office, and I'm talking with one of my coworkers, and we were talking about markup languages for our documentation at work, and he was talking about, you know, uh, even NROF is a nice serviceable language. And I thought to myself, yeah, it is. You know, I, I had to do my, my thesis in TROF because it, it gave me great control over the text layout and let me fulfill the university's text layout requirements. And then as I thought about this, I thought, you know, it really wasn't that hard to write that. I really should have man pages for all of these tools. Sigh. All right, fine. Before I go on bragging more, I, I'm going to create man pages for all of them. Okay, so I broke down. This was about Labor Day weekend this year, and I decided to start grinding through the weekend and getting all of the man pages written. At this point, I had about 28 tools and scripts. 10, 10 scripts, 18 tools. So I, I ground through it, and I got all the man pages, and I really wanted these to be useful man pages, so I put examples in all of them, and I tested to make sure the examples worked. And as probably many of you have had this experience, as I started to document it, I realized that there were some more rough corners in the tools and their options and, and things of that nature. And so I went back, and, and I ended up giving a lot of the tools a little bit of a, 
not an overhaul, just a makeover to, again, sand out some more rough edges. So it turned out I really wasn't done even then. Finally, I said, okay, now it's time to do a podcast on these tools. And I sat down and outlined this podcast. And after I was done, I don't know what made me think of it, but I realized there was another key command line tool for text that I had no equivalent for in Onyx, and that was sort. I couldn't sort packets. I just didn't have any capability for it. So, all right, I will knock out sort. I already have sort routines written from my younger days, and so all I have to do is figure out what I'm sorting on, and I'm done. So, I wrote a p-sort utility for packet sort, and at the time it would only sort on packet metadata, but that was okay because the metadata was extensible. I thought, you know, you could, if you really wanted to, just extract fields from the packet, put it in the metadata, and sort on that. And so I thought, that's good enough, I'm done. And then the next day I thought, no, I should at least have a bash script that automated that process. So I wrote up a quick bash script that would take a set of fields that you wanted to sort on and embed it in the metadata and pass it to the sort routine and then delete it from the metadata so it wasn't lingering around. And that led to polishing up some of the metadata manipulation in the virtual machine, in the NetVM, and also in the PML language. And then I realized, you know what, that was still clunky. The PSort program itself really needed to be able to understand the keys, or rather, take the keys directly. And then I realized even that was clunky. Really, the PSort utility itself should be able to directly take the fields that you wanted to sort at and build the key. So, okay, I went through, I figured out a way to, using those same protocol parsing libraries, extract the key from command line arguments, and uh, you know what? It worked as it worked exactly as I had hoped. It didn't actually take more than a day to get this utility up and running. And then I deleted the extra script that I had as it was very superfluous at this point. So now I had PSort. Great. I'm I I should be done now. Really done now. Well, there was I will admit one little bit further of hackery that I had to perform before I finished this podcast. And that was, I'd never really done a podcast, and I needed to figure out how to make the audio quality for this decent. And by the way, I hope it is decent. But I can tell you one thing, regardless of how it sounds to you, it was a hundred times worse when I made the first recordings. Terrible, terrible. I tried different mics that I had, one on a headset, uh, one that is the mic on my laptop itself, uh, one on my tablet, and then one with this old gaming mic that I had that's on an arm. And all of them sounded pretty bad. So I thought, well, let me just use the mic that seems to be the least objectionable, that is this, this little gaming boom mic, and at least maybe Audacity can make up for the rest. Perhaps I can just filter out the background noise and so forth. I was having problems with especially uh, spikes that would clip whenever I accidentally breathed into the mic. So I tried holding the mic off to the side and talking with it that way. And uh, it was better, but then my voice was very soft and it really wasn't great. So, my last bit of hackery was, I got a piece of terry cloth from our drawer full of rags. I got some electrical wire, some industrial electrical wire that I'd been using for outdoor wiring, which is nice and stiff. I got the screw top to some jars that my wife uses to jar vegetables for Christmas gifts and so forth. And what I did was... This is, you know, the screw top, of course, has a hole in the middle. So I wrapped the terry cloth around that, fastened it with rubber bands, and then attached that using this nice stiff electrical wire to the mic itself. 
So I thought this would keep my breath from making these spikes, and then I could speak close to the mic, and the noise reduction would be better. And like I said, it worked. I'll put a picture of this in the show notes. It's quite a little ugly job, but it, it definitely helped. I hope this audio quality isn't too objectionable to you. But like I said, whatever it sounds like to you, it really was much worse. So I was kind of proud of that little hack job as well. All right, so I've come to the end of this long description here. And am I really, really done with this project? Have I got it in a state where there's not too much to add? Well, I have to confess, no. I thought about adding random number generation to the PML language. I thought about adding backing store for the packets. I thought about extending the language with associative arrays. I thought about adding DNS resolution into the tool suite. I thought about ways that I could improve the connection tracking. I have plans to improve the packet ordering or reordering detection in PDIF. I have ways already in mind for how to improve the performance. I have visions of embedding my little NetVM inside the Linux kernel or on an embedded platform and say my Raspberry Pi that I got for my birthday. I have more protocol parsing that I can add. I can improve the multiplexing and demultiplexing. I can improve the string formatting. I just know that this project is, is not going to end anytime soon. And I think my wife and kids will be less pleased with this. I think at the end of the day, I've had a lot of fun with this project anyways. It's a genuine hacking project. It was I created it to scratch an itch. It has led me on all sorts of tangents that I never imagined in the first place. It has definitely led me on some emotional roller coasters, sometimes feeling like I'm the most brilliant person in the world and sometimes feeling like this is just idiotic and dumb and nobody's going to want this. It's kind of taken on a life of its own. But at the end of the day, I look at this project like I look at all hacking projects, and that's through the lens of the advice of my advisor, who said, when you're picking a project to work on, just pick something that you yourself would want to use and think would be really cool. Because if you build it, then you've already won. If other people like it, then that's just icing on the cake. So, I can definitely say that this project is in a state where I'm using it and I'm having fun with it. So, if you out there are interested in playing around with it, you can find Onyx at gitorious.org slash onyx, O-N-I-C-S. There's a wiki page in there that gives you some information for how to get started. I'll just give you right now the quick version of how you build it and how you install it. First, you type git clone git at gitorious.org colon catlib slash catlib.git and this will clone my C libraries that I've been hacking on for longer than this Onyx project. Those libraries are fundamental to the use uh, fundamentals of the operation of the Onyx programs themselves. The next step clones the Onyx repository. Git space clone space git at gitorious.org colon onyx slash onyx dot git. So now you'll have two new directories in the directory that you perform these commands in. One will be onyx and one will be catlib. First, cd space catlib slash src. Then, type make, and that builds the catlib. Then, cd space dot dot slash dot dot slash onyx. Then, run make, and this will build all of the Onyx programs, and it will also run all of the regression tests. Uh, if test 42, 43, something like that fails, don't worry about it. That one is timing-based, and I've had a devil of a time making it always, always work. 
Just run make again and it'll probably pass. If you're really brave and you f or if you find the tools intensely useful, you can also then say type sudo space make space install to install the program uh, in user local bin uh, and user local man and then you can have it in your path and use it to your heart's content. I hope you have found this story interesting. I hope the audio quality comes out decent. And in general, thank you to the HBR community for years of enjoyable content. I hope this is received as enjoyable content as well. And to all of you guys out there, keep on hacking. This is Gabriel Evenfire. If you'd like to reach me, you can reach me through the Gatorius.org site for Onyx, or you can email me at evenfire, E-V-E-N-F-I-R-E, -E at sdf.org. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.